Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, along with the baby new year producer Brandon. <laughs> How are you doing, Tony? <laughs> You're wearing a diaper, right? No. Your baby new year. I, I've never even, I don't even, I, is that a thing? You don't know about baby new year. I have no idea. I'm so out of any uh, cultural anything that's going on in society. Yeah, yeah. There's like, you know, there's the the old man, the old uh, um, guy with the long beard and the staff who looks kind of like a wizard is, you know, the end of the year and he walks, you know, off stage and then baby new year shows up with like a diaper and a little blue bonnet and a pacifier in his mouth. <laughs> you never seen that that goes back to Is no dude that trend? goes back to like those claymation um you know christmas specials i don't know if it was from the jack frost one or something like that but yeah old old the old <laughs> year guy goes out and the baby new year arrives well i'll i'll i'm i'm afraid to google that so i probably won't <laughs> <laughs> but i'll just take your word for it oh uh, well the first reverend hunter podcast of 2021 uh and how are you feeling about the new year i'm feeling like it can't get worse than the last year (laughs) i'm I'm not gonna go too positive on it but i'm also gonna say it's gonna be better i hope how about yourself how are you feeling about? yeah i'm excited about the new year actually i think it'll be a good year um i'm feeling good about where my kids are i'm feeling good about um i don't know i'm gonna remodel my kitchen starting Later this month, uh, I got a duck, my annual duck hunting trip out to Oregon. It'll be my first time on an airplane in a year. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. People are getting the vaccine. I hope my mom gets the vaccine pretty soon. Um, so we've, we've all been really bubbled around her to protect her from that. And, when, you know, my brother just got the vaccine, the one who I'm going to visit in Oregon. He's a doctor so he he's um one of the first in that state to get it yeah oh cool well it, it sounds like positive things are very much on the forefront for you this year so that's great. i think so i think yeah. so and you know what uh i took a little bit of uh you know podcast host privilege this week by actually inviting my spouse onto the podcast she's not been on it before i've mentioned her of course a lot her name is courtney perry we have been married uh, since 2011, and she's incredible, man. She's she's saved my life. My my last book, actually, that I wrote the the last book that ha- I published in 2015 has a dedication to her in it because a friend of mine, uh, when I was going through some hard times, said, "When you say Courtney, it sounds like salvation." And um, so, I mean, she said the word, Courtney, the way you say it, it sounds like you're saying the word salvation. So, uh, you know, the book is dedicated to Courtney who saved me. And I really don't think I would have survived those toughest times in my life uh, without her. So it's great having her on. And I just thought because we're starting a new year and a lot of people look to improve themselves at the beginning of the year, they want to lose some weight or they're going to start meditating or going to yoga classes or read more books or whatever. It's, it's just a time when a lot of us obviously think about our priorities for the coming year, think about what we want to do better and differently. And Courtney spends a lot of time thinking about that. Um, she's a yoga instructor. She is an expert at the Enneagram, which is a... a a personality, you'll, you'll hear her talk about it. It's a way to understand your personality better. She's a, a deeply spiritual person. So I just thought um, she'd be a great one to have on to kick off the year and help us all think about how we can live better lives in the coming year. That's awesome. No, that that's a... Uh... That's that's totally cool. I, I, in full disclosure, I have have yet to listen or edit the episode, but I'm looking forward to it. I've, I haven't got a, a chance to meet Courtney yet. Um, you know, with COVID and everything like that, yeah. it, it, things kind of weird. But uh, I've I've never 
I've, I've only heard you speak nothing but positive about her. And you always sound so glowing when you're talking about yeah. her. So I am looking forward to it. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't turn out to be some sort of hour-long couples therapy session that I have to <laughs> work my way through. No, I think you'll like it. I think you'll like it. Yeah, we had a good time. Um, so I just wish everybody out there happy New Year Thanks, as always, for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. We would love it, love it, love it. The, the one little uh, uh, New Year's gift you can give me is to uh, like, you know, subscribe, rate, review, uh, and, and share with other people. The more, you know, the more reviews we get on the different social media services, the more this podcast will pop up in people's feeds and be recommended to them. So we would love if you just took a minute to click that. But look, even if you don't, um, we're thrilled to have you as a listener. And we hope that you really have a blessed 2021 and that this conversation between me and my beloved spouse, Courtney, will help you launch your year in a positive way. Hi, Courtney. Well, hello, Tony. You're, it's you're, such a surprise to see you here. You're the first uh, guest on the podcast in many months I've been able to sit close to. Well, we've certainly seen a lot of one another this year. <laughs> you know, let's because podcasts don't have smell-o-vision... Let's talk about what our house smells like right now because I think it says something about us. It's a there's two I I smell at least two odors. One is uh some namaste incense burning and the other is the smell of dehydrating wild game meat. <laughs> yes, these are not in opposition to one another. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh the commingling of our sense. Mm -hmm. Yes. I woke up hungry because of that smell of the beef jerky dehydrating. Um, so that it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> um, you, when we met or when we started dating, we were both going through traumatic parts of our lives, my, mine more than yours, but I mean, getting out of a marriage and getting into a new marriage is this odd mix of, you know, pain and grief, but also joy and happiness at finding something new and new love. Um, when we were, when we started dating and then, you know, courting and getting married, I wasn't super into hunting. Like I, my point is you've seen that grow. Yes. That, that interest in me grow. Do you, what do you attribute that to? Or, I mean, have you ever thought about that or thought that's kind of weird or, I mean, we joke a lot about the fact that you probably wouldn't have like, oh, I'm going to, I want to marry a dude who's super into hunting. Yeah, never. Uh, <laughs> but that is because growing up in Texas, I mean, I grew up in a suburb of Houston. No one I knew hunted. I didn't even think about it. It was not a thought in my head uh, at all. So the only exposure I had is, you know, I'm a, I was a photojournalist for 15 plus years of my life during that time in Dallas. I would photograph things such as gun shows, and I saw a bunch of people in camo. So I, in my head, I was thinking, oh, people who hunt are obsessed with guns. And then I had the experience of photographing a watch party for Rick Perry and the governor race. And it was held at an exotic game ranch in Austin, owned by a waste management company. Mm -hmm. And I think it was right mm -hmm. next to a dump. I can't fully remember, but I do recall driving down this long road to the ranch house where the party was and this crazy antelope I'd never seen before. <laughs> you know, prance, I just slam on my brakes. It like runs across the road. So it was, that was interesting and fun. I was like, oh, this is uh, unique. <laughs> But then I get inside and it's just wall-to-wall -wall trophy heads. And yeah. that also did not sit well with me. Like, I'm not about that. I don't think yeah. that's a, a yeah. positive um, reason to hunt is to put a trophy on the yeah. wall. Personally, it didn't seem right to me. So that, that was my only experience to real hunting. When I met you, you would bird hunt. Um, I was most concerned when you decided you wanted to go into deer <laughs> because for me I was like uh-oh is he going to become like one of these you know gun obsessed trophy hunters like mm -hmm. is 
I'm stereotyping. I'm not yeah. saying this yeah, is no, right. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I this appreciate This is from a lack honesty. of knowledge on yeah. my part, you know. Uh, so I did have some concerns there. But uh, all has been well. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not a huge fan of firearms. No, um, but I love the fact that I never see them. Like you, I, I've told you before, I couldn't be married to someone who is not responsible uh, with gun ownership if they were a hunter. Um, and we only have hunting guns, you know, yeah. and um, so I, I appreciate that. And uh, they're locked up and the key is hid somewhere else. And um, <laughs> so you, you are, a, you are a person who hunts. I don't see you as a hunter. That's my brand. What are you, you're messing <laughs> Why are you messing with my brand? Oh, my gosh. Well, when I wake up in the morning, you look at me and you see the Reverend Hunter. That's no, the first thing you see. Come on. Come on. I don't see anyone because you've woken up at like 4 a.m. <laughs> That's true. Um, I mean that as a compliment to like, and as a, a way of saying that my definition of what that means to be a hunter has, has changed. And like, I... It has minimized, I suppose. You don't have to, um, it doesn't have to be the one defining thing in your life. And you aren't, I mean, you cook gourmet meals. You're kind of, you're a chef because you're a hunter, you're a chef. Uh, you are, you have many irons and many fires. Keep going on. Keep talking about how <laughs> awesome I am. <laughs> Why do you think I wanted you to come on this podcast? <laughs> Let's talk about wild game eating. What do you think about that? I mean, that's, again, that's not something... That's yeah. something I threw you into the deep end of the pool on. It's not like you grew up eating wild game. And we eat wild game most days. We have some form of meat that was that I harvested True. by hunting. I am thankful you process it and care for it so well because there was one point in my young adult life where I did try some venison sausage or something, and I thought it was disgusting. It really tasted gamey, didn't like it at all, and... Though I've learned now with you, there's it's important all the way from the time you kill the animal to when you clean it and how you process it. How you care for the meat in the beginning actually affects the taste of the meat on the table. Is that right? That's true. That's true. Yeah. And uh, you're so dedicated to the whole process. Um, and the deer that you shoot is the deer you clean, the deer you butcher, and the deer that's in our freezer. Uh, so I think there's something to how I, maybe you've just lied to me and told me this, but <laughs> um, I would think that your care in the for the meat and the preparation of it makes a difference in the flavor because I love it. I love everything you prepare. I think that's true. There's a lot uh, to be said for how you prepare it. And I think there's a real, you know, we have a shelf full of wild game cookbooks it, it's. It, I think a lot of wild game is less forgiving in in the cooking of it than you know commercially raised meat. It's it. It's hard to screw up a super fatty marbled steak, beef steak, because uh, there's well, because there's so much flavor in the meat and there's so much fat that also infuses flavor into the meat. A, most wild game is a lot leaner than that, obviously. So you just have to take more care in the prep, I think. But yeah, I mean, I work pretty hard at that. I'm glad you enjoy it. Um, and it means I don't have to cook. But there's some really things like. that still make you a little squeamish. Like when I brought home rabbits, you weren't super fond of that. Well, <laughs> I wasn't against it. Is it because I, I kept calling them bunnies? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I... Our smaller dog is like the size of a bunny and has, you know, beautiful eyes like the bunnies do. It's just, um, it's, but it's something. But then when I made that rabbit ragu. It was extremely good. Um, (laughs) But these things can coexist. Like I said, I, I can have some sadness, but at the same time, I tell people often who are appalled at hunting, my first question is, well, do you eat meat? And the majority of them do. And my answer is, you know, this animal has had a free and beautiful life and had came to a quick end. And I feel that that's more humane than a farm raised animal in a pen that's stuck in a pen its whole life. And um, so I aim to eat only the meat that you hunt and uh, the things I buy at the store are 
other items, non-meat items. You've you've come on a couple hunting trips with me to a couple places that are very dear to me, mm-hmm. to my heart because of the role that they played, you know, when I was going through some hard times. Um I'd love to hear your recollections of those places. I think first you went to Huron, South Dakota, and then later you went to Gackle. No, no, no. no. Gackle was first. You went to Gackle first and then Huron second. So your first trip with me was to Gackle, North Dakota. I think that was my only my second year going there to duck hunt. Um, the first year I had gone out and spoken to a bunch of pastors in Jamestown and got hooked up with this guy, Harry Krause, to... Uh, duck hunt in the kind of the pothole country, which was pretty awesome. And then I went back the second year and I preached at their little church, which no longer exists, has since been torn torn down and shut down. Um, you just, you laughed a little bit. What, what memory from the Gackle trip stands out? I recall Harry driving his beautiful turquoise pickup truck. Um, 1976 old, yeah, F-150 yeah. refurbished. We were all yeah. piled in. It's still dark out. Yeah. It's uh, pitch black, in fact. And we're all in the front, including Crosby, on the bucket seat. And he is just driving pretty fast over cornfields <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, that are like undulating terrain, you know. And we're yeah. looking for... Uh, A A body of water. Body of water, yes. (laughs) And one of my greatest fears since moving to the north is getting stuck in a car in a frigid body of water. (laughs) So (laughs) I was gripping. In fact, you carry in your car one of those like window smasher things. Oh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. A dear friend, Ratchet, gave it to me when I moved up here because she knows my fear. Um, So I had some fear. I did have some fear. (laughs) And it was very cold, but we found the place. I mean, I was just stunned by the way he knew in complete darkness yeah. the ins and outs of this cornfield although he did at one point say oh no i don't you know he seemed like he lost his way and that's when i was concerned <laughs> but all all went well and uh i remember i mean duck hunting just having to be so quiet mm-hmm. and still and it being so cold uh it, but there was beauty in the sunrise which i appreciate because i'm not often up for sunrise so yeah it's difficult but it was beautiful i think I enjoy more the pheasant hunt if I'm photographing. Again, I'm always photographing. You actually, you actually brought a book to one of those oh, yeah. hunts in North Dakota because yeah. we were hunting and I read it. Canada geese over a cornfield. And I think you just sat in corn stalks, like on an upside down five gallon bucket reading a book. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty boring. <laughs> so yeah, the pheasant hunt is was more interesting because it was more active and the dogs moving around it was uh but all that to say i still wouldn't want to regularly go out with the hunters (laughs) it was interesting to photograph and to see but it is uh hard it's the elements make it difficult and especially if you have nothing to to do it's right yeah yeah it's hard to endure um you're a real dog lover and you, I think you love seeing our dogs hunt almost as much as I do. Mm-hmm. The hunting dogs. I mean, even your little, <laughs> even your little Luna. Yeah. The Chihuahua Beagle has flushed a pheasant. Yeah. Tell about that. What happened there? Well, we were running on a trail in a nature preserve and... Like in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Yeah. But it was on a uh, a very narrow path through the woods and we didn't pass anyone else. Yeah. And she runs on this like bungee leash connected to my waist and she's always in front of me, you know, trudging ahead. And she just jumped through herself into the brush and on the bungee and then sprung back. And when she sprung back, this pheasant larger than her flew up. Uh, you could hear the wings. It was beautiful, but I was proud of her. I immediately texted you and said, I you know. should, maybe you should take Luna on your next And I said, hunt. maybe you should carry a shotgun when mm. you're walking in the nature <laughs> preserve in the Twin Cities. I don't think they'd appreciate that. No, I think you probably couldn't do that. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, so you've been on those two and then you've other times you've come on and sat out, you know, when we've been up at the cabin, you haven't come on a deer hunt yet to photograph that which i think i would love that would be the hardest though i mean it's cold and you're sitting for a long time you know 
from a visual perspective too, I know it's important for people to see all aspects, uh, but I wouldn't look forward to the gore of, that yeah. I imagine a deer hunt is yeah. as far as the butchering goes. Yeah, I mean, gore, I don't know if the gore is the word I would use for it. I think the hardest thing for you would probably be watching for those 30 to 60 seconds when the deer is dying. You can see the deer. You know, it takes longer for a deer to die than a duck or pheasant to die, as you might guess. And watching the animal die is for sure the hardest part for me. Like they're still moving and kicking and, you know, they're trying to survive. I mean, they have a survival instinct just like any living creature. Um, I guess if I'm going to eat the meat, it would be something I should do at some point. Yeah, I think probably that's right. I mean, it would put you more in touch with the process by which this, you know, this venison that came from a doe that's a part of the sirloin of the doe that I have then sliced and marinated for four days and is now on the dehydrator in our kitchen, you know, that, yeah, I I could tell you exactly where that deer died and like what it was like to watch from the deer stand and where I shot it and how big the pool of blood was when I walked up to it afterwards. This reminds me of the practice of yogic eating and you prepare your meal, you sit at the table in silence, probably by yourself. You take one bite and then you put your utensil down and you chew it and you close your eyes and you consider what's in your mouth. If it's bread, you know, when, when was it baked? What are the elements that went into it? Um, how did the sun grow the plants that were needed? Um, and I, I think in the same way, like say, taking that moment at least for your first bite of a meal and considering where it came from, how to honor it, and just appreciating that is a good practice. Mm-hmm. And that was that was part of your yoga teacher training, I remember. Mm-hmm. It was to eat yogically. But I, before we get to yoga and, and you know, your new venture, and I, I'm interested in how it, I mean, what we as like outdoors people hunters and anglers and hikers and kayakers or whoever's listening to this can learn from you in that. Um, I do want to talk briefly about your, you know, your more traditional role as a photographer, which you, I mean, more traditional, it's just what you've done for longer. Um, You've seen a lot of, because of me, you've seen a lot of hunting shots now. And I just wonder, um, uh, there's a lot of talk in the hunting community about moving away from what's called the grip and grin, the 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 hunting shot where it's you and your rifle and you're holding up the dead deer by the antlers or um, you and your shotgun and a bunch of dead birds on the tailgate of your pickup. So what do you think, What what makes for more interesting photography for those of us who are outdoors especially people who are hunting where you know firearms and dead animals are not people's favorite thing to see on facebook probably so like what what ways can do you think people who hunt can bring this alive in tasteful ways in the same way I question anyone who whose social media account is solely photos of their own face. I I kind of equate that with the hunting trophy shot. Um, but the but the difference is <laughs> there's a dead animal, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what I don't like is the implication that there's joy in death hmm. with that shot. Mm-hmm. I have seen you take some photos, even though, you know, there's, you have a few of those as well, the, the pickup truck, you know, yeah. birds on the, I've seen you do some photos where it's a shot of the fur on the deer with an antler nearby. Like there's some artistic ways to show the animal, which I think are actually much more interesting. We all know what a dead deer looks like, but I mean, and I guess 
size of the deer like makes the difference to somebody, but to someone who's not a hunter, um, they all look like the same photo to me. So as a visual person who appreciates visual originality and ingenuity, I would want to see how can you artistically honor what you have just accomplished. So it still says like, I have successfully hunted an animal, which is good. That's impressive. I, I couldn't do that. Um, so that I appreciate that. This is, how can you in an artistic way show that you appreciate that animal? Even your close-up photos of pheasant feathers, which are gorgeous. Pheasant feathers are incredible. The array of colors and the iridescence. Um, I don't know. I think that could be a challenge in and of itself. Like, how are you going to represent a successful hunt in a unique way? When you're when you're on a shoot, like when you come out hunting with me and you're f photographing it, not just like me shooting something on my iPhone at the end of a hunt or whatever, but when you're like actively journalistically covering a hunt, what kind of things do you look for that make it interesting or like bring that hunt to life? For me, it's more about the hunters themselves and the interactions they're having, whether it be with other people or with their dogs or even with the animal that they have just dispatched, to use your terminology. Um, so it's about the action of the day, not the outcome. It's about the process. So I don't even need, if I'm photographing a hunt, I don't need their to be an animal who has been shot by the end of the day. The hunt still happened. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And, you know, most people will say that. It's about the hunt. It's not about the kill, right? Or it's about the journey, not about the destination. It's kind of the same thing. And you, you get out there and you trudge through the snow or you sit in the deer stand all day. Um, it can be hard to make those things look interesting without the, the animal. I mean, unless I think like you're encouraging us to do, you use your imagination to try to bring it to life. Otherwise, that's one thing I have noticed about when you've been out and like the photos you've taken when, when I've been hunting that have been the, that mean the most to me that I look back at the most, um, are the ones that where there's something happening, there's some action either between me and a dog or there's one where, um, you know, my face doesn't even show, but it's like me putting a pheasant into the vest, into the game bag. And um, there's others where I have this image in my head of a, a, a friend of mine named Jorge and he's like pointing in a direction. He's telling us, he's trying to like manage the hunt through um, some cattails um, with a bunch of other guys, like a kind of a field general type situation. And yeah, those are, it's interesting. Those are the things I remember. I mean, I can visualize those images in my head. I can't really visualize, oh, another like guys around the back of a truck with a bunch of pheasants on the tailgate, you know, trying to get the dog to sit still and look <laughs> at the camera, which is like the most maddening part of all. Um, well, you have more recently in your career kind of pivoted to this thing called the Enneagram, which is I want to talk to you about. And I want to see if what we can learn as outdoors people from this ancient wisdom of the Enneagram. Um, so just to catch people up, I mean, you're, you're, you're still a photographer, but you were like a photojournalist full-time professionally for many years, and you've been freelance recently. Plus, as I've already mentioned, you went through yoga teacher training, and you teach yoga both at a local gym here in the Twin Cities, but also on your own for people, um, teach some of your own classes. And now you've been doing a ton of learning and study about the Enneagram. And it's interesting. It's been, you know, awesome for me as your spouse to watch you integrate these three things. Um, but can you like, 
What's a thumbnail sketch of the Enneagram? <laughs> <laughs> well, first I will say I have been studying it since like 2003 mm. in Dallas. So it's not something I just decided to step into because yeah. of COVID or something. Um, in 2018, after I had taken various courses along the way over the years, but in 2018, I did a dedicated uh, cohort a group with Suzanne Stabile, my Enneagram teacher in Dallas. And there were people from all over the country who got together and we still communicate and ask each other questions and connect. Um, it's a beautiful group. So it's an ongoing study for me, but it's something that as, um, you know, my, my photography, the, the things that I was being asked to shoot in a journalistic sense over the past year or so just became more and more conflict oriented Mm -hmm. whether it was politics or violence yeah. uh, or a combination of both. And I felt that what I would like to be bringing into the world is um, more cohesive action. Uh, I still think photojournalism is extremely important, but I, both the industry and my life are leading me in a different direction right now. So the Enneagram, I believe, is really can, can bring us together. And it's simply um, an ancient symbol, uh, kind of a sac sacred geometrical symbol uh, that modern psychology has added their two cents to. I mean, that's it in a, the most extreme nutshell because we don't have a lot of time to go into it. P people want to learn more about it, they can go online. But it basically says there are nine uh, motivations in the world if you want to say nine types of people, uh, we do exhibit behaviors of all nine numbers, but our motivation, our underlying motivation never changes in life. How that ex is expressed does. We are each unique individuals. It doesn't diminish that. But uh, by learning what our motivation is in life, we can better observe ourselves and better choose our actions rather than being reactive. Yeah, I think that's interesting about the Enneagram because it, that, in that way, it's different than other personality typologies because it's talking about what motivates you. It's a little different than the, um, like the dichotomies of are you an introvert or an extrovert? You know, are, are you thinking or feeling? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm on the middle. You know, I'm, I'm a little more thinking than feeling or whatever, which is that's the Myers-Briggs, obviously, which is also a helpful tool. But I think as we get older, thinking about what motivates us, I mean, I'll just say this. As I get older, I spend a lot more time thinking about spending my days doing stuff that I want to do and not and trying to really avoid doing stuff I don't want to do, which is at age 52, I have some of the freedom to do that. When you're 25 and you're in your first job, you don't really get to decide like, I don't really like doing paperwork, so I'm just not going to do it. I mean, you won't have your job very long if that's the case. But when you get a little bit older, you know, you start to maybe look and be like, what motivates me? What The way I often say this, like, what gets me out of bed in the morning? And for me, a lot of times it's hunting. Like we, we, you and I are recording this on New Year's Eve, and I'm leaving tomorrow morning for my, for my fourth trip to South Dakota this year to pheasant hunt. And since I like decided with some other guys to do it, that I was definitely going to go. It snowed in South Dakota yesterday, so it was like this is the time. Let's go do it. I can't stop thinking about it. So that makes me think, you know, that this motivation aspect of the Enneagram is interesting because we are all motivated differently. And everything you just said kind of puts you in a group of three numbers. Okay. You didn't necessarily speak to your specific motivation mm -hmm. in life, which is a little bit different. Um, you're talking about more, maybe your phase in life right now, uh, which is unique to you. Yeah, So sure. the Enneagram part I heard in that is what do I want to do every day? And numbers three, seven, and eight are in the aggressive stance. And they, that doesn't mean they're mean. It just means they primarily assert their own agenda. Like they're the ones who wake up and say, what do I need to do for me today? Okay. And not everybody thinks that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, do, how does somebody else wake? I mean, I do wake up in, at four in the morning and think like, what am I going to do today? How am I going to tackle this day? That is, that's an aggressive stance toward 
a 24 hour period saying mm-hmm. like use even the even the verb tackle how am i going to right other people um are more concerned about how can i just keep today peaceful and avoid oh, conflict yeah. um others are thinking about solely about relationship and i wonder what someone who you know what kathy's doing today and um gosh, I really want to reach out to her and see how she's doing, you know. Gosh, that is not... (laughs) I know, I know. First of all, don't wake up thinking, (laughs) how can I have a peaceful day? And secondly, I don't wake up thinking like, how can I connect with these other people? (laughs) (laughs) Unless there's something to be gained like planning a hunting trip. Right, right. How do you wake up in the morning? Which of those do you wake up in in the morning? Um, Mine is more... I I am a seven and this um, means I enjoy variety and so in the past like every I'm trying to be a little bit more disciplined these days but generally as a seven I would wake up and just feel like asking myself okay what's what do I want to do today not what do I need to do what am I going to do but what do I want to do um how is the day going to look? You will ask me hey do you want to go work out tomorrow and my answer is always well I'll tell you tomorrow, like so I'll know if I feel like it or not. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, sometimes it'll but, even be like a, a Thursday, and I'll say, "Do you want to go to yoga next Monday?" Because I'll be on the app, and I'm like planning my week, yeah. and I want to reserve a class. You're like, "Are you kidding me? I have yeah. no idea what I'm gonna do no on way. Monday." You and I are both future planners, but I'm more of a future dreamer of like what's something exciting in the future I can look forward to. And you are about more of the taskmaster. But let's get back, let's bring it back to the idea of hunting and how I think this could help. Now, we talked about how um, hunting is a great deal of both. You've got your groups that go hunting and there's a lot of interaction and you need that communication on a pheasant hunt. And then you've got your deer hunt where you're just silent for hours on end, perhaps, I'm imagining. Alone. (laughs) Yes, alone. Mm -hmm. And so there, there are two realms in which you could use the Enneagram. It's the self-observation of the alone time and then the interaction of the group time. And, you know, if you are on a pheasant hunt and there is someone who's, there's someone like you who's aggressive and assertive and the eight like is, um, knows, knows what he wants and how to accomplish it. Um, you and threes also are very, uh, focused on efficiency. And I can't tell you how many times like in our house, I've heard like, your kids will say, you know, stop yelling, dad. And and my answer is like, he's not yelling. That's just his voice. <laughs> you know, like, so uh, you are perceived yeah. in a certain way a, right, as being aggressive and assertive. You'd be a great leader sometimes on a hunt. Um, there are other people who are like the nines who are more concerned about the peacemaking element. How, how is everyone in the group going to be happy today? Like how, how are we going to maintain a good vibe and nobody gets too upset? And then you've got the, um, I mean, we could go through all the numbers. You know, one of the things I like (laughs) about the Enneagram is these numbers are good, like for memory, you know, like you can, it helps you to remember. I think sometimes some of the other, um, personality typing things people use are hard to remember and weird letters and whatever. And these nine numbers, it's pretty simple. So why don't you just like walk us around, give us a, a tour, starting with your number and mine, which you've already mentioned, the seven and the eight. Um, with the caveat that, of course, this is a super deep yes. ancient wisdom tradition, yes, and you're not doing it justice. Absolutely. But maybe you're maybe you're wetting people's taste buds to study more. Great, that is my hope. That that is my hope. And uh, yes, it's deceptively simple, but I agree, easier to remember than the complex combinations of letters. So we'll start uh, with the seven, as you said myself, the enthusiast or the epicure, someone who really likes variety. Every day is different. Yes, I, I, as a freelancer, love the life and could never go back. Not that I was ever in a real (laughs) um, confined job, but I could never go to that place. I find great joy in uh, every day being different. Okay. The eight, which is you. We'll go back through these as hunters, but I Okay. I, I want, let's go through them first this time, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, the eight is the challenger. Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise. Um, some p- 
people call the eight the leader, um, but really they're known for kind of pushing against, going against. And this means uh, they're, they're very self-confident and they might not be pushing against you because they disagree with you. They might just be um, really making you think about the opposite of... Uh, an argument. Um, they this, enjoy this, arguing, yeah. in fact. Like, that might be why they bring it up. Um, this are, came up at a family yes. discussion just last week when one of the kids said to the other two, You know, dad just takes the devil's advocate position sometimes to like push you and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so you're, you're, you push others, and some people find it to be aggressive in a negative way. Um, But once you understand an eight, you know that they're actually coming from a place where they want the best for you. And they actually want you to meet their challenge as well. Uh, Moving on from that, we've got the nine, uh, which is the peacemaker. So in some ways, a bit of the opposite. (laughs) Someone who is striving to not let any of their inner emotions cause conflict internally and striving to keep Um, any conflict from the exterior world outside as well. They really um, will merge with the ideas of others if it's not something that's a big deal to them. And there are very few things that are a big deal to the nine. So, oh, you want to have barbecue? That's fine. Let's have barbecue. It's going to be great. Uh, Let's just keep everything copacetic. Yeah. And they're great negotiators, great mediators. They really can authentically see everyone's side of the story. Okay. One is the perfectionist. And these people can be seen as aggressive sometimes, but they just uh, have a very strong sense of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong in the world. And they're striving to make things right. Some people have an inner critic that's always telling them what they need to, what needs to be better about themselves. Other versions of the one are more concerned about reforming the exterior world, society, uh, their family, their organizations they're involved in, but they uh, are really, um, they want the best and they can seem pushy themselves sometimes as pushing their own agenda. But um, again, often they are wanting you to experience what they know to be the best and the right thing Okay, coming from a good place. Twos are the giver, the helper, and they will often know your needs before you yourself know what you need. They are hyper tuned in to everyone else and they give and they offer themselves. Sometimes they even sacrifice themselves for the the good of others. Um, Where that's coming from is a a place where they need to be loved and they believe that they will receive love if they show you such love. That's where that's coming from. But they are um, quite loving people. Okay. Threes are achievers, performers, and they're similar to the eight and they've got their own agenda and they want to accomplish and be successful. But whereas the eight really doesn't care what other people think, the three very much does. They might not admit that (laughs) even to themselves sometimes, but they're the success that they want to achieve is so that others will see them and acknowledge and actually show them love because they have succeeded. They believe that they will receive love for what they do in life. Um, So that's something to remember with the three. Okay. Fours are uh, the individualist and these are people who are uh, very, internally focused and often uh, have a kind of a, an appreciation for the melancholy, really. Mm. They, they need deep meaning in life and they strive for their interactions with people to be deep as well. They're fine. Like if they have a problem, if they're feeling pain, they do not want you to tell them how to be happy or try to get them to be happy. They want you to share in that pain with them and acknowledge it. They're fine experiencing the heaviness of life. And the gift of them is they will sit with you when you are as well. They're not going to try and fix you. Yeah. The five is the observer. And these are folks who have uh, 
often a sense of invisibility about them because they are observing everything and they will choose what they want to step into and get involved in. If it's at a party, they might be on the fringes and um, they might pop into a conversation, but then they'll leave. Um, they're concerned with information gathering and they also have a very limited amount of energy every day. So it takes a great deal of energy to, for a five to show up in your life, to engage with you and be a part of something that yeah. that requires energy. So just know, even if a five just shows up to a party, it's because they love you. Um, it's, uh, they've much, they need their alone time to recharge. Okay. The sixes are the loyalist or the skeptic. Um, these people enjoy being a part of a collective and feeling supported by others. They have a gift for um, being prepared because they always wonder what's the worst thing that could happen. And uh, some of these sixes, uh, they all deal um, struggle with anxiety to some extent. But again, any number on the Enneagram can have anxiety issues. But the sixes, uh, fear is an issue for them. And some sixes will uh, not participate in things because of that fear. Other sixes, counterphobic sixes, will make themselves do things that they're afraid of because they're trying to counter the fear. Wow. Thanks for that tour. That, you, oh, you're, you're grimacing. You're grimacing. I am because it's just impossible to do it briefly. And, oh. Uh, it's you got to have an elevator pitch, babe. I mean, how you, else? Are you, you can't doing? go through each number on an elevator pitch. Impossible. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, I have so many thoughts. One is that, you know, I'm thinking about the different kind of hunting I do. Uh, and I th the most kind of relationally intense hunting is pheasant hunting. Because even if you're duck hunting, it's like you put out the decoys and then you sit in the blind and there may be one or two other people or three other people and that's it. Or, you know, maybe if you're on a hunt out in the mountains or whatever, there's two of you together with binoculars and rifles trying to like hunt an elk. But pheasant hunting is is so intense for its teamwork, its need for teamwork, because you have all these people, you're going in different directions, plus you got dogs, you're trying to cover this certain amount of, of territory effectively. Um, my point is just that I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in a pickup truck between two or three other pickup trucks, all the windows down, everyone's shouting, you know, directions back and forth to one another. Other people won't even talk. They just yep. sit there looking at their phone like, would you guys just freaking decide what we're going to do and I'll do it? Like, I just can see the different um, personality types at play in a situation like that. I mean, you and I are both freelancers. We, we don't like go to an office and work with a team of people or, I, you know, I used to be on a church staff and we had an Enneagram person come in and spend a day. So we'd learn each other's types and be able to interact with each other in more healthy ways. I don't have that so much in my daily life, but it really comes out like in pheasant hunting. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, um, how do you, how do people, use this in teamwork type situations, use the Enneagram? I think groups use it unconsciously even before they know it. And the Enneagram gives you words to put to it, which actually I th helps you engage the work um, more effectively. What I mean is you already know, as you referenced, like there are some people in your group who take charge, some people who are indecisive, some people who are quiet, um, and you you just make it work, I guess, based on that. Like the people who are aggressive are the ones who are calling the shots and et cetera. But if, <laughs> you know, if you had an Enneagram session with all your pheasant buddies, yeah, which I don't see happening. I don't see but, that happening, but um, let's hypothetically <laughs> okay, have here's, an Enneagram here's session. Here's what you individually, since you know the Enneagram, how you can use it. Okay. Other people don't have to. You go out there, you notice that someone who has quality insights has shut down. They're not saying anything. And you, you realize that you are 
talking a lot. <laughs> Loud and bossy. Like, yes. just, just a guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, you could choose in that moment to ask the person who's quiet, you know, what do you think about this situation? Do you think we should do this or that? Sometimes, depending on that person's number, they might actually have an opinion about it. Other times they won't, but they might feel, uh, it might make them feel better to be even just asked the question. Um, I think that it's most, I mean, the Enneagram it serves us best as a personal growth tool, personal development tool. Okay. So when so we you're recognize less than for teams, it's more like well, what I you mean, can it can be used for teams yeah, if the teams yeah. are on board with learning it. But when right, you're out pheasant right. hunting with people who have no interest in it, it's it's more about okay, I'm going to use this moment to observe how I'm reacting to people, what I'm doing, and do I like the the important thing is you can't change who you are. But you can moderate who you are, okay. you know, and I, and we don't want to like, <laughs> we're unique and beautiful and the Enneagram does not say to erase that. It, it's to, to recognize your gifts and your talents and our greatest gift is our Achilles heel, you know? So when is your direction that is appreciated and your dedication to hunting, when has it gone a little bit over the line and gone into like that intense eight space? Mm -hmm. And then just thinking, okay, I'm going to take a few deep breaths, <laughs> pull it back and engage the group. Okay, then let's take it to the other extreme of of hunting, or it just doesn't even need to be hunting. It can just be outdoors life in general, but you know, like a, a deer hunt is as you've already mentioned just sitting in a deer stand in a tree for hours maybe for days on end or if you're on a bear hunt or something like that just sitting alone with yourself or for that matter taking a solo canoe trip into the boundary waters which i've never done i've only only gone with other people because i've worried a little bit um about how i would do alone like what i get so lonely and bored um you know, it's funny because like one of the most extroverted guests I've ever had on this podcast is Suge Emery, whom you also know. Yes. And he does these solo uh, hiking winter camping trips. But it's also like he's talking to the camera. Like he knows he's got an audience. And um, so I, I guess then to flip it from those, that like intense group thing of a pheasant hunt like I'm going on tomorrow and I'm already like preparing for these long discussions about how we're going to hunt this one field. It, talk about how the Enneagram might affect, like d d does one deer hunter get real fidgety in the stand and another can sit there for hours and hours? Absolutely. Because of their number, because they're wired differently as you might say, or, or I you would, might not I say? I would think so. And I, what I do right now, as you know, is I merge the Enneagram and yoga because uh, I believe so much in the somatic element of the Enneagram. Our bodies, our minds are, are connected. And, um, so yes, like you as an eight sitting in that deer stand, you are going to get fidgety pretty darn quick. And um, I think what could be helpful for the eight would be to physically get out some of that intensity before you even get in the stand. So you can burn off some of that energy that you have. And then once you, and I would recommend this for even for meditation, if you're going to take a meditation practice, um, maybe get some of that energy out up front and then you can sit and then it's a matter of maybe using your breath to control your thoughts like um and it takes work it takes work but the yeah. five the observer would have no problem sitting up there and being still hmm. and quiet for long periods of time i would imagine yeah yeah and i i was just thinking about like for instance your number the number seven the enthusiast um, there's a thing like what I do with, you know, people call it multi-species hunting. There's some people who are really, really into one type of hunting. Like they're hardcore about deer hunting. They think about it all year round. They plan it all year round, etc. And then there's, uh, there are others of us who like hunt 
anything we can hunt or whatever. You know, same with fishing. Same with fishing. Some people just like, all I fish for is largemouth bass or walleye. And other people like, I fish for anything. Like, whatever's biting, that's what I'll fish for. So there, I can see also the different numbers, you know, playing into that. Like, what part of outdoor activity would even interest you? And some people have said to me, like, I, well, we joke about, um, both of my brothers who are accomplished hunters in their own rights, but they each lasted like 30 minutes in the deer stand this year. <laughs> and then they're back in the cabin, like texting us that they're watching college football. <laughs> and the rest of us are like, no, it's deer hunting. You have to sit out for hours and hours. They're like, nah, <laughs> not interested. Yeah. I mean, and some of that is like, has nothing to do with the Enneagram, but right, it's like, what right. do you love and yeah. what are you dedicated to? Well, this is the first podcast episode of a new year after coming out of a really hard year. And you are, you know, more than most people I know, you spend a lot of time thinking about, you read a ton of what would be called self-help books, although that's not a term I really like because it, it, it... Me it, either. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, that's in, in the publishing world, that's what they're called, unfortunately, self-help and advice or whatever. But you read a lot of personal betterment books. Is that a better way to say it? You, 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 okay. And you meditate every day and you're, you're, you're thinking about these things and you're deeply, you know, you're deeply involved in the Enneagram. So as, as the new year dawns, how are you like, what, how are you putting this stuff into play for yourself? What are you looking forward to in 2021? What are you looking to do better in 2021? Well, I am in the head triad, so I do think quite a lot. Um, five, sixes, and sevens are all in that triad. And I have been thinking a lot about this website and launching the Enneagram uh, as a subscription website where I offer yoga classes that contain Enneagram wisdom and then some recorded interviews with people of every type and really growing that. My message and hope for others would be, you know, not to make any crazy claims about changing things in a drastic way about themselves, because often that thing that bothers us most about ourselves is tied to our greatest strength. And so it's about learning more about how we operate and who we are so that we can utilize our strengths in a positive way and not let them fall into um, an unhealthy place, I suppose. Like where, are you willing to talk about for yourself personally, like what as a seven, what are you endeavoring to do better or differently in, in the coming year? Yes. Uh, this whole new adventure is anything. I mean, that term new adventure is like, definitely defines what a seven wants. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'm working on uh, is being more dedicated to a single vision. So this Yenneagram project. And for me, how that looks is um, in, in reining in. I mean, this year <laughs> has been such so free reign. I yeah. mean, so much work was canceled. There was so much free time. And a seven with too many possibilities becomes stagnant. Yeah. That's my experience. It's overwhelming. It's hard, yeah. And I, as much as I desperately want opportunity, freedom, and uh, variety, when there's too much, I stagnate. So I have, uh, I purchased a weekly calendar that's a chalkboard and I have these magnets that I've labeled and I've labeled them, you know, one is labeled for meditation, one for yoga practice, one for Yenneagram business work, one for photo shoots, photo editing, like anything I might do during the week. And on a Sunday, I plan out the week with these magnets but as each day progresses I've done this for a couple weeks now like Monday passes and like oh I didn't do I didn't finish photo editing so I'm going to move this magnet down but oh I did go out running with a dog so I'm going to move that back up to Monday because I had that for Tuesday so it gives me a structure to work within yeah. that's still flexible and that's where the success is if I 
suddenly said, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to get up the same time every day. I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to do that. I would fail miserably as I would say most, if not all sevens would. It's, it's just impossible. But what I can do is manage and increase my discipline a little bit within a seven framework of variety. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for me, I, I've been working on this and I plan to continue to work on this um, in 2021 is being flexible. <laughs> you know, being yeah. like less yes. driven and am, am, I, I don't want to lose my ambition. No. Although I think my ambition has been tempered quite a bit as I've grown older. Like it's not nearly what it was, my ambition. My ambition when I was in my 20s was just like off the charts mm-hmm. and like bulldozing other people to mm-hmm. try to get what I want. But even um, thinking about, you know, when a lot of times I, I make a decision. So let's say that this scenario I've already talked about where there, there are several pickup trucks lined up at the edge of a field. And we all roll down our, we're shouting back and forth between the pickups of who's going to do what. And uh, I do a lot of like, ah, hey, I'll, you know, tell me where you want me to go. Or like, I... I've walked the last three fields. I'm fine blocking this time. Um, and we're working at that. And it's the same with parenting. I've I've really tried to be very conscious as the kids have grown older that I've backed off. Because I think I was, you know, as a dad, particularly my years as basically a single dad, like super involved. And you've, you know, you've seen these intense conversations where I'm push, push, pushing them, always pushing them, pushing them. And I realize I have to back off on that too and let them start to figure out if they really want to go in those directions. Maybe they're not that ambitious or maybe they are, but if they are, they have to come from their own, you know, source of strength from within. So that's for 2021. I too have struggled in 2020 with the lack of deadlines, the the enormous amount of free time, I felt like entire weeks just get kind of washed away and had very little done. And as a writer, um, I thrive under deadline. Mm-hmm. Like if I and I'm not one of these people who stays up all night writing the book. Like I, if I know there's a deadline on the horizon, I will parcel out my time in such a way that I'll get it done. You I'm know, the same there. Yeah. And I will say, uh, this has been our experience of of 2020. Other people worked nonstop yeah. and overtime. Right. Uh, so this has been our experience. And thankfully, we were still able to live in our house and, you know, not worry about losing it. But we did have... Uh, yeah, it's it's just been strange. And it's been strange to have friends who are working nonstop and we've lost you know, most of our work for the year. Um, Anyway, so each person is having their unique experience of 2020 and this has been ours. I just want to say that. Yeah, that's totally fair. And I do, I want to add that um, I I was doing some yoga before we met a little bit. It was like kind of helping me through tough times. But obviously with you being a yoga instructor, I've done a lot more yoga in the last 10 years. And... um, not even just like, not even the spiritual level, but just the physical level as I've aged. And really, you know, one of my top desires is to be an active older adult and not to have to put aside this pursuit that I'm so passionate about, which is being outside. And seeing how my dad died coming up on three years ago and really let himself go in his later years um, yoga has been so helpful to me. And I just hope that a lot of people who listen to this, like maybe that's something in 2021 people can do, is commit to doing yoga once a week and start to engage their body in that way. You know, it's so funny thinking back to, you know, back 20 years ago when I, you know, people were starting to do yoga around my tribe in the church and people who were like, it's of the devil, you know, it's satanic and stuff like that. It's just funny to look back on now how ludicrous that is. 
Yeah, I've, I never experienced I that. I know you didn't. But <laughs> but, and how helpful yoga, how helpful yoga yeah. is. And I, I will also say that the yoga I teach is modern yoga. It's a physical yeah. based practice, uh, movement and breath based practice. Um, and that's all it is. Yeah, but it's like, the same way yoga is. The modern yoga you do is built on an ancient tradition. Absolutely. In the same way that Enneagram is. Yes, it has an ancient lineage. An ancient, but now modern psychology has taken it up and sophisticated it in modern type ways. Yes. Yeah. Um, people can find you at yenniagram.com, which is Enneagram with a Y in front of it. Yes. That's your website. Plus, of course, you're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, Yenniagram. And if somebody wanted to start the new year with a practice of yoga that engages, you know, that is also attentive to different personality types. Yenigram's a place to go. I mean, Absolutely. That's the kind of thing. I have, and you know, if you just want to check it out first, um, before subscribing <laughs> that I will have a link. Uh, I do have a link to my YouTube channel that has some, uh, brief and longer yoga videos that talk about that, uh, that correlation between the two. Some filmed at our cabin. It's true. With dogs yes, running around. dogs running around under me, licking my face. Yes. It's pretty cute. If you like <laughs> dogs and you like yoga, that might be a good place to start. Well, babe, thanks. <sighs> what do you think? How was, how'd it go being on my podcast? Um, pretty well. <laughs> You're a great interviewer. <laughs> we'll see how I feel after I listen back to this, if I ever do. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Love you. 